Hey, it's time for Cartoon Plorama. Robert Larson with you again on your Thursday night, a little after 7, about 7.03 actually. And it's July 30th, 1998. Co-hosting and producing today is Greg Bishop, publisher of The Excluded Middle, one of the premier magazines on things paranormal and mind-altering. Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. Thanks. Is that so, coming through? You are coming through fine. Oh, I see it. Okay. And uh, you've also lined up a guest that we're going to bring on a little later. Who is that? Uh, this is Peter Jordan. He's a researcher, writer. He's been uh, looking into cattle mutilations starting in the... around 1977, so quite, quite early from the beginning. Sounds exciting. Anomalous cattle mutilations. Yeah, they're probably all pretty anomalous, but I think he has a... Uh, quote-unquote solution that isn't so anomalous. Okay. Before we get into this any further, we'd like to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. So, Greg, let's talk about your zine, The Excluded Middle, one of my favorite zines out there. Well, your name's in it. Oh, you <laughs> outed me. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it's only in there for a little bit. So, um, yeah, what do you got going in this issue? Well, let's see. I'll open it to the contents page. This is issue eight. Uh, we've got a remote viewing contest. I think that's the first time that's ever happened in a magazine. Uh, remote viewing, what's used, used to be called psychic functioning or seeing at a distance. I uh, remember when you first told me about that, I was a little, uh, I don't know, skeptical. And then when you told me what happened, it... Uh, what had happened personally with me? Or? Yeah, pretty gall darn interesting. Yeah, we uh, took a couple of objects. Well, what we did, this is out of, book, out of a book called Mind Trek by Joseph McMonagall, who used to be in the Army's remote viewing program from the late 70s to about the mid-80s. And uh, one of the th uh, protocols he suggested to start, to start your exercises in psychic functioning was uh, what you could do is you uh, get a friend, you know, who lives, you know, away from you somewhere else, call that friend up and uh, agree at a time that uh, agree on a time that you would show up at their house and at that point they would take something in their house, put it in a box and just leave it on the shelf. And then a few days, a week later, you, you, uh, in, in, the, in the meantime, you'd write down your impressions on a piece of paper just, you know, once in a while. Wonder what's in the box. Clear your mind out and just write down what comes in. So... Uh, beginner's luck hit, and I went over there the first time I did it, and uh, I had like visual. I had visualized this object that had a that was. I wrote down round. It's like a ball, but it's not a, a ball. It's a toy, a sphere attached to something, multicolored ball, connected to another structure by a shaft. And it turned out it was a Miss Piggy Pez dispenser with the round <laughs> Miss Piggy head on the top. You see the p little picture I drew of it. Yeah. There? And then my friend did another one. I put an electric drill in the box, and he he drew a picture of a gear, like the chuck on the front of the front of the uh, the uh, uh, drill. There, he wrote "shiny chrome gear." And out of the thousands and thousands of objects in your house, I mean, uh, I was talking to my dad about it. He goes, "Well, you know, chance things happen once in a while. Maybe you hit on it there." And I said, "I, I don't know. This stuff was pretty close." Well, both of you, uh, I thought his was a little closer than yours, but yeah. both were, out of, yeah, the millions of shapes, it was, um, I don't know, like 80% within range? Or, 
Yeah, I mean, we did other ones, and some of them didn't even come close, but some of them were close, and these were the best ones. We only did about 10 apiece. So out of 10, we probably hit decently about a third of the time, and wonderfully once each. So, okay, so the, uh, there were others, though, that weren't really close. Yeah, we had some that were so far off, it wasn't, you know, it was like a complete guess. Okay. Uh, beginner's luck hits uh, pretty pretty quickly, according to uh, some of these remote viewer people. And then there's a curve where you do horribly, and then after a while it comes back up again. So, okay, what else you got in uh, this issue? Uh, let's see, we've got uh, an article about the history of flying saucers and, and uh, airliners, uh, airplanes. <laughs> Sightings of flying saucers from uh, airplanes, mostly civilian, because all you ever hear is uh, the military pilot uh, taking off in the morning from the field in his shiny new Corsair, blah, blah, blah. This one was uh, actually uh, passenger airliners. And uh, Scott Corrales wrote that. He concentrates on Latin American and uh, Spanish European ufology, which is almost unheard of in this country, so it's, it's good to have him in here. Uh, other stuff we had was uh, we have a, uh, a term paper on UFOs from a sixth grader, uh, son of a friend of mine who lives in Tucson. I interviewed Dean Radin. Okay, yeah, I was waiting for you to get to that. That's oh, I'm the, sorry. Yeah, that was a big problem. feature. Yeah. Uh, Dean Radin is a parapsychologist. Um, okay, turn the radio back to this station. He's a parapsychologist that uh, was working at the uh, University of Las Vegas. And he seems to think, and a lot of people seem to think, he was kicked out of there for doing his parapsychological research because it, was, it, it somehow was embarrassing the administration. But he wrote a book called uh, The Conscious Universe, which is one of the best arguments ever in a scientific manner by a trained scientist for psychic functioning, or PSI as it's called. And um, it's, uh, as one of the reviewers said, it's, it's not only a, a good primer on parapsychology, it's a good primer on the scientific method, which is a, um, a, a really a kind of an incredible thing to say about a book on, on, on uh, uh, parapsychology. And uh, he, he's pretty conclusively proven that there is a way that uh, our minds can perceive things that are at a distance in time, uh, in space, in one, in one instance, and in time. Uh, which is actually kind of amazing. And he's, what, the basic thing he said, well, this, this lets us know that meaning has, uh, is, is a dimension, you know, time, space, all that, but meaning for humans is a, is a component of our world and transcends time and space. So, and that book of his is The Conscious Universe. And, yeah, uh, it's a, available uh, in all bookstores. Why don't you tell people um, how they can get in touch with you at the Excluded Middle and where they can get the Excluded Middle and uh, then uh, tell a little bit about Peter Jordan while I try to get him on the line. Okay, yeah, the magazine is The Excluded Middle. This is issue number eight. It's on many newsstands and in many bookstores, including Borders and uh, Barnes and & Noble around the state, around the country, and very soon in New Zealand, of all places, in Australia. And uh, let's see, if you want to get in touch with the magazine... Our P.O. Box address, P.O. Box 481077, Los Angeles, California, 90048. And uh, the email address uh, is right now is EXCLMID at, you know, the ampersand, primenet.com. Uh, so, uh, that the people want to check out the magazine, they can either call me and go down and look at the you know nearest newsstand. Peter Jordan actually contributed to an article 
this month, uh, I mean this issue on uh, cattle mutilations, and says it has nothing to do with aliens. And um, which fascinated me because that's all you ever hear. Aliens are coming to uh, mutilate our cows and take off their DNA and all that. Um, He says it's all humans. And maybe he can talk this evening about why he thinks that. He kind of blew me away with this. And apparently Robert has Peter on the line now. Peter, are you with us? I am here. All right. Welcome to the show. Oh, nice to be here. And Greg is here as well. Hey, Pete. Hey, Greg. How you doing? All right. So, yeah, we were both uh, really fascinated by everything you had to say about the anomalous cattle mutilations and all this. And uh, so, Greg, do you want to start him off with... Uh, yeah, what, what fascinated me to begin with was uh, probably one of the first things you said to me. Was, like, was uh, it's not aliens, you know, it's, uh, it's done by human agencies. And I was also fascinated to find out how you first determined that, I guess, in when was it, 77 or 78? Yeah, actually, um, my interest in this uh, grew out of just out of an article that I read in a, um, I think it was Saga magazine at the time. Oh, that was a great old. Remember, remember that magazine? <laughs> that goes back to what the sixties? Yeah, actually, actually the seventies. Okay, yeah. And I did some writing for them, and they had they had a magazine called Saga UFO Report, and uh, there was an article on cattle mutilations um, that, and the article focused on a certain uh, subset of cases that were happening in the dual sing of Mexico area. And uh, this kind of attracted my attention. I wondered what, what this was all about because this was something uh, new as far as uh, my research in uh, UFOs had been. I, I knew of abductions and other kinds of bizarre, high strangeness stuff that had been happening. But I wasn't, that, I wasn't familiar with cattle mutilations being connected with UFOs. And that was the link that the UFO community was tending to make. And so I wondered if, in fact, that was a valid link or maybe if there was possibly some other explanation for it. And so that was, that's what launched me on actually what is now <laughs> a lifelong quest mm-hmm. uh, for did, answers, which I don't claim to have um, uh, exactly for what is going on with the cattle mutilation problem. As I, you and I have spoken about this before, I think it's a very complex issue, and I think there are many tentacles to this octopus. Um, and I've been able to maybe you know dig up maybe one or two of those tentacles. Um, but uh, much of the evidence that I eventually came to seemed to suggest very strongly that uh, at the very least there were strong terrestrial um, agencies that were involved in the mutilations and the perpetuation of the mutilations. Why do you think they would be doing that? Well, um, that, that opens up that this whole Pandora's box. You know, They spend the rest of the hour now. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> uh, just talking about that. Um, let me just take you step by step, if I can, through a chronology of uh, some of the cases I investigated when I went to Dulce personally. And this will probably give you and, and, and your listeners some insight maybe into how my thinking brought me to the conclusion that this probably did not have anything to do with aliens, but was me to look that way. Okay? All right. Um, and I'll try to I'll, I'll compress this as much as possible, because otherwise it'll be too lengthy. Um, one of the first things that I did was to see if I could get somebody who could actually finance me to go out to New Mexico and to do this research, because I didn't have the money to do that. None of us do. Yeah, right. So Science Digest, um, whom I contacted, uh, was nice enough to commission me to do an article on the subject, and they paid my way out there. So I went to New Mexico in around 1979, and I spent about a week or two in the Dulce area. And my contact out there was a police officer by the name of Gabe Valdez. He was the head of the uh, New Mexico State Police 
he was responsible for uh, investigations into mutilations, not only there, but also in Colorado. He had formed kind of an alliance with other states, because this was a massive problem, as you know, at that time. Right. And when was this again? It was around 1979, 1980. Oh, all right. And uh, so what I did is I went sat in his police car and he took me out to all these various locations where all these things were happening and I spoke to ranchers etc and I looked at his massive files which he had accumulated on these mutilations which had been going on um, with great vengeance at least in the Dulce New Mexico area since around 1976 now one of the hardest hit areas was in fact Dulce there were about in see most of this began in New Mexico around January of 78 there were 23 an important number for me. Uh, mutilations that occurred in New Mexico at that time, 13 of them had occurred in the vicinity of Dulce, New Mexico. Now, for those that might be listening that aren't familiar with what Dulce is, Dulce is a small little village which is basically in the heart of the Hickory Apache Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. This may be an important link to understanding what the mutilations are all about if some of the connections that other researchers, for example, such as Danny Casalario and others, have turned up in their investigations are valid, mm -hmm. and I think they may be. Now, Peter, uh, before you go any further, could you um, just describe a little bit what these mutilations are like for sure. people that don't really know anything about it? Sure, exactly. Um, what has generally been regarded as a classic mutilation, uh, to distinguish it from a mutilation that is due to mundane causes, for example, um, this is something else I should point out. 98% of cattle deaths are due to something as simple as lightning. Uh, lightning is like is something that cows fear probably more than anything else. And I've seen the damage that lightning can do, and it is quite amazing. And in fact, if you're not trained to recognize the effects, you might think from looking at the denuded flesh that's on the cow and the scorch marks that in fact an alien had come down here and had done this horrible deed. Uh, but in addition to that, there are many other things that we can point to that can lead to cattle deaths. And this is important for people to understand. We don't automatically assume that a cattle death is a classic mutilation, i.e. something extra mundane, unless we've ruled out all of the possibilities. And that means looking at things such as um, a local weed, which is a very common uh, plant that's out in the area that leads to selenium poisoning. Selenium poisoning has uh, a lot of anomalous things that it creates in a cow, which to, again, to the unsuspected, might look as though, in fact, we are dealing with some sort of bizarre alien species that might be doing this to our cows. Um, or, or to some governmental or military group. In the cases that we have where we've excluded all these mundane causes, what we are left with, what appear to be cuts, and this is the basic, uh, this is the basic benchmark, uh, the cuts themselves that are made in the cows, in which the reproductive organs appear to be cored out, are of a surgical-like nature. Um, they are done with, uh, now this is uh, because we've looked at the hemoglobin, which appears to be cooked, suggesting that these uh, that in order to cook blood you need at least 300 degrees Fahrenheit or so and so we're using instruments of high heat in some cases the cuts were so clean that some veterinarians said well this definitely wasn't a predator it wasn't scavenger it wasn't lightning it's not selenium poisoning it's not clostridium it's not bacteria yeah it's it appears to be done perhaps by a laser beam Mm -hmm. uh, some sort of cauterization because uh, um, because of the, the cleanliness with which this is done. These are very pristine. Um, so basically, um, what we have are, one, surgical removal of reproductive organs, um, sometimes the removal of a single, like a, a sensory organ, for example, the tongue, 
and sometimes one eye, for example. Mm -hmm. you, you seldom, if ever, you get two eyes that are taken, but usually one eye is. Probably we can get into why this is significant in a little bit. Right. Um, and these are the principal targets of the mutilators. In other words, the worst parts of the cows, which always ruled out, you see in the minds of many ranchers, and those the way that had a working cortex, the idea that, in fact, scavengers and predators would be eating the worst parts of the cows. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, as far as the, the cuts go and the surgical nature of it, that's one of the benchmarks of it. And also the fact that there are usually around the cow, um, it's not only cows, we've had horses and pigs and others, but it's primarily cows, bovines, that have been attacked. We find an absence, conspicuous absence of tracks. No, no marks of any um, humans, human footprints. No, no marks of any animals that are around that. Um, and that adds yet another wrinkle to the mystery in that scavengers and predators often after the mutilation um, avoid the carcass. They will not go near it. They will not chew on it mm -hmm. um, as if it's been tainted somewhat. Peter, of these, these anomalous cattle mutilations, uh, how many would you say are somewhat documented? Is this hundreds or thousands? Or um, I would say that of the, of the type that I'm talking about, I think there, there, there have been hundreds of them. Now, back when I first became involved in this, there were numbers being tossed about that I think were mythic um, in that uh, people were just averaging up the number that they thought were happening in each state. And they were tossing out preposterous numbers of like 10,000, 15,000 I was hearing. And at that time, to be honest with you, I was naive enough to accept these numbers. I now realize that I think that these have been greatly exaggerated. Um, but I think at least we are dealing with um, hundreds, at the very minimum, hundreds. Going back about 20 years? Um, probably as early as 1967, when the first um, real publicized case occurred in a town called Alamosa not far away from Dulce, New Mexico. Alamosa, by the way, is an important um, link, I think, in this entire thing, um, in this entire series of events. Um, it seemed to have escalated from that point forth. Um, that's when we had a horse that was erroneously uh, named Snippy oh, yeah. by the press, but was actually a horse named Lady. Um, in Alamosa, that was found denuded of flesh with scorch marks around some of the bushes, Strange UFOs were being reported by the owners of the horse in that area at that particular time. Um, there was a veterinarian pathologist by the name of Dr. John L. Schuler, who now works um, in tandem with um, um, Linda Howe, who is a very well-known um, mute investigator, mute, uh, mutilation researcher, uh, who believes, by the way, that these are primarily being done by, she, well, practically all of them, she would probably say, are being done by extraterrestrials. Not by any, she doesn't believe that there's any terrestrial uh, involvement other than perhaps government agencies that are simply monitoring what the aliens are doing. And that's her thesis. And, that, and by the way, she's, she has, she's the exponent of the most popular view on the subject of the mutilation. Um, but you have your difference of opinion yes, with her. Um, and for reasons that I'll get into in, in, a, in a few minutes here, but uh, to sort of set the stage of how this all came about in 1967, we have the Alamosa case with the horse. And then it started to uh, grow from that point forth and spread its tentacles in this octopus out uh, beyond the borders of Colorado into uh, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, et cetera. Um, all of these cases, by the way, have been west of the Mississippi. We have no single case 
of a mutilation, from a classic mutilation occurring anywhere east of the Mississippi. Why this is so, again, we do not know. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to why that might be. You mentioned that Wild West thing amongst the uh, people who may be doing this. State of mind. Yeah, that, that could possibly be. And also, we, we can't lose sight of what I think may be one of the, uh, the, uh, the crucial elements in all of that, which is the mineral content that we find in those areas, uh, especially in the Four Corners area. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where you have a third of the nation's uranium. Um, you have a lot of trace minerals. Um, you, have, you have a lot of, of mineralization out in those particular areas. And why was... Oh, sorry. And a geothermal, et cetera, et cetera. And that may be um, something that is of importance to the mutilators. And why was this important uh, to be connected with the Hickorya area, getting back to Dulce? Yeah, the Dulce thing is interesting in, in light of the um, possible connection to um, the so-called um, alleged Yellow Lodge, which Danny Casalaro um, wrote about um, in some of his notes. That's um, an army organization, right, or is purported to be? Yes, yeah, so, supposedly, and supposedly there's supposed to be a connection. Uh, this is all alleged, and again, we don't have any firm uh, connections on this, but it would be interesting if anybody has such information, if they could come forth about this, but supposedly that there are uh, on Indian lands um, and uh, and especially on the Hickorya Apache lands, as well as other Indian reservations, um, operations having to do with the development and engineering of parthenogenic viruses. Supposedly this was being done in concert with Stormont Labs in Woodland, California. And Stormont Labs even later acknowledged that in fact it had had some preliminary discussions with um, a security firm, which whose name often pops up in a lot of these strange UFOs slash mutilations, perhaps high strangeness context, uh, Wackenhut, uh, concerning biological weapons. Um, and I find that's interesting because it's alleged that there's a center called D6, which is located in Dulce, New Mexico, where a lot of this uh, covert activity supposedly is taking place. I have no special information about that. This is information that I've picked up simply from my readings, um, and this comes from references that were made in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Thomas and, and Keith book on, uh, on the octopus, right, right. which I highly recommend to people that are interested in looking at some of these other possible um, and maybe seemingly far-flung connections, but I think that they're important ones to look at. Well, you brought up the octopus, and before that, Danny uh, Casalero. Uh, yeah. Could one of you, uh, either Greg or uh, Peter, go into that a little more? Because uh, it's, uh, I think a lot of people don't know the story of Danny Casalero or the octopus and uh, how it relates to all of this. Sure. Maybe Greg can do that. <laughs> well, when I get tongue... You more knowledgeable about that than I, I, I don't know. I mean, when I get tongue-tied, Peter might have to help me. Danny Casalero was an investigative journalist and he had uh, the one doing a, I think he was doing a story for a computer magazine that he That's owned correct. right I can't remember the name of the magazine but as he was doing the story he found out that uh, somebody in the just I mean well all different departments but most significantly in the justice department had bought or was trying out some software that was used to track uh, criminals the most sophisticated software that had been uh, invented up to then for police departments and then, you know, the FBI and CIA and 
everybody could use this because it would talk to each other across different platforms and all this. It was right. called um, PROMIS, P-R-O-M-I-S, which I can't recall what it stands for. Mm -hmm. That was the acronym. Anyway, the Justice Department looked at it and said, well, this looks interesting, but we don't want it. And later it turned up on their computers in a slightly modified form, I think. And uh, the people at uh, Inslaw, which was the name of the computer company that invented it, a software company, am I right? That's right. Yeah, they they were trying to sue the government, uh, Justice Department specifically. The Justice Department, you get this? They stole some software. <laughs> the uh, They were trying to sue them for stealing the software. And meanwhile, um, the Justice Department and the government started selling the software to other countries, police departments. Canada had it, has it probably. Israel, they, they sold it to friends and enemies alike. The, the, the weird thing about the software is it had a back door, and the person that originally sold the software could use that back door to check on everybody's records so people could buy the stuff and then they couldn't they couldn't complain about it because they it would be revealed that they had bought stolen software which they knew they had exactly danny had uh, castellero had found this and um as he delved into the uh, different personalities swirling around this uh this theft of this software he started running into other uh uh interests and, and parts of the government and people in power and uh, companies that uh, seem to be connected to it. And that's what he called the octopus because it was a, uh, who knows what the head of it is. It's probably a, a collection of interests. But the tentacles included, uh, he, he had references to Area 51, to Wackenhut, to Stormont Labs. Um, it it, it spread had, quite um, far. References to the Howard Hughes, uh, <clears throat> which some, I've, I understand, believe was actually uh, possibly the motivation for his death. Right. Um, he that was, he might have stumbled on something other than just the discovery of the the promise a software connection. Right. He was getting was close to it. Yeah. They were afraid of, that he knew about. He was getting close to it, something like that, and he went to meet with somebody in West Virginia, a strange place, uh, according to a lot of reports. Uh -huh. uh, he went to meet with a, a contact who was, said he was going to blow something open. And uh, he never showed up for the meeting, or no, was he showed up for the meeting and then he left. And he was uh, he, he was found in his hotel room in a bathtub with a crudely done suicide note, uh, having nothing to do with anything he'd ever said before. In fact, he'd warned people, "If I kill myself, I uh, it's not I didn't do it. If, if it made it look like a suicide, it wasn't me." I also and, heard, and again, this is just a rumor that um, he was found with his fingernails missing. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I had heard that on WBAI radio. Yeah, he was... doing an interview. Again, that's... Uh, I, I have no confirmation of that. Right. No, that's really creepy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, because they tried to cover up the... Uh, they didn't want to conduct an autopsy on this. Right. So they, something they, happened. Nobody ever found a... They never had an autopsy in the family. Right. I don't think right. ever saw the body. Yeah, and not to get too far afield, because I know... Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if, I were, if I were new to this subject and I was listening to this conversation, I would say, my gosh, wow, they're, they're off onto so many tangents. <laughs> Well, well, that's uh, the amazing thing, but I think I want to make this point that what people don't understand, too, until they probably would get involved in this a little bit, is that you automatically start going off on tangents because the phenomenon is not does not take you in a linear direction as many think that it does. There are many, many um, pieces to this enormous jigsaw puzzle. Um, I think some of us, from time to time, stumble upon a piece or two, but I don't think anyone has the entire picture yet. Hey, Peter, if I could just interrupt you for a minute. We have to go to a little break sure. here, so uh, we'll continue with that line of thinking after we go to this little musical break for probably about a minute or two. Oh, that's fine. Okay. Okay, great. 
You're listening to Cartoon Plorama on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Welcome back to Cartoon Plorama. Robert Larson here, Greg Bishop of the Excluded Middle, co-hosting with me tonight. Hey, Greg. Hello. <laughs> Our guest today on the line from the East Coast, is that New Jersey, Greg? Yeah, he's uh, in New Jersey. Is uh, Peter Jordan. We're talking about anomalous cattle mutilations and conspiracies and all kinds of other weird stuff, and we've been just going all over the place, and we're going to try to get a little bit more focused in this second part of the show here. So let's bring Peter back on. You with us, Peter? Sure, I'm here. All right. Yeah, we kind of been going all over the place there, but uh, you had gotten up to the cattle mutilations and somewhere in the 60s and you were investigating that part of it and something to do with the Native Americans in that area and uh... right right yeah I can bring us back on track with uh, my Dulce investigation mm -hmm. uh, which actually took place in around 1979 or so um, and what I want to do is just to basically discuss one of the cases to give you an idea and to give the listeners idea of what the kind of thing that we're talking about um, in, in, in April of 1978, in Dulce, um, there was a mutilation that occurred on the ranch of a man by the name of Manuel Gomez. This is a gentleman who was the hardest hit of all the mutilators, and it was he that served as the focus for my investigation um, for the body of this article that I wrote for Science Digest magazine, which was never published, by the way, for reasons that are even more mysterious than the phenomenon itself, um, which I can talk about a little bit later. Um, Basically, this first mutilation um, involved a 11-month-old Hereford Charlie bull. And um, Manuel Gomez had a son named Edmund. And uh, he told me that uh, they had guard dogs all the time on their property, of course, to, to protect their livestock. And one of the most interesting things about this phenomenon is that I've heard this in countless numbers of cases. These guard dogs on the night of the mutilation the night prior, to, uh, the night of the mutilations, or just prior to the mutilations, would suddenly go to sleep. Um, would not be on guard in the way that they normally would, as if they had been switched off in some way. Um, again, we don't know what kind of technology this is, but there seems to be a technology involved that interferes with the normal um, watchdog, uh, you know, mentality that many of these animals have. Um, in addition to this flawless surgical removal of all of these organs that we talked about, the sex organs, the rectum and pelvic bone in this cow, Gomez told me that he had also noticed something interesting, which were visible bruises around the brisket area of this cow, which suggested that a strap had been used to airlift the carcass. This was one of our first indications were that we were dealing with also something that was aerial that was possibly lifting these cows taking them to a remote place, conducting the mutilations elsewhere, and then returning them to the site. That now, is also notice I, I said that there were bruise marks. If we were dealing with aliens, I don't think there would be a need for hog tying. This seems to have been lost on a lot of people who have looked at these cases. They seem to avoid looking at some of these details, which obviously point toward human culprits. Now, um, in addition to the, uh, the bruises around the brisket area, we, there were also uh, certain sets, uh, several sets of these odd circular imprints 
These are about four inches in diameter. They were found about 100 feet north of the animal, and they were etched into this hard plant clay road. And obviously they seemed to involve an object of great weight that had pressed down to create these, uh, something that was assumed to be heavy and metallic. Um, Howard Burgess, who was a gentleman that I worked, also uh, talked to and worked with on some of these investigations that I was involved in, um, had actually done uh, some of the analysis on some of the tissue. Burgess came, by the way, um, out of a background working on classified projects for Sandia Labs, um, and he turned out to be an excellent contact. He found out that the, when he looked at the internal organs of these cows, of this particular cow, he found that they were discolored. Uh, they seemed very abnormal. The liver was deteriorated, totally deteriorated, and had a very odd pinkish-yellow color. You know, not the kind of color that you would get uh, with, a, with a, a liver that's supposed to be very healthy. Um, and he also told me that when he examined that liver, uh, it seemed to have kind of a mushy consistency, as if perhaps uh, that it had been exposed to high, about, uh, high levels of uh, microwave radiation. So this doesn't normally happen with these internal organs that they get No, it better. doesn't. Um, there was very little blood. The other thing I forgot to mention is that with a lot of these classic mutilations, uh, the blood is almost completely removed from these carcasses, completely exsanguinated. Um, the little blood that was left in this particular cow was a pinkish liquid, like watered-down ink. When he took that liver to the lab, we found out that it didn't even have the slightest trace of copper, which is something that, of course, you know, liver would have in abundance. Mm -hmm. But even more so, more interesting was the fact that there were um, we had four times the amount of phosphorus, zinc, and potassium in there that we would have in a control sample. So in other words, the, all the minerals you would not expect to be there were completely in disarray. Somehow they had been rearranged. Mm -hmm. Now this involves some sort of technology, some sort of very, very special technology. Now, Burgess told me that he believed that microwave radiation may have been the culprit and that that's what altered its chemical composition. Um, he said that uh, blood, for example, contains, um, contains copper which keeps iron suspended and it's iron that actually gives blood its color. And that non-ionizing radiation such as microwave releases the copper out of the suspension and then that re results in a depletion of iron from the blood. And he had worked in some of the early pioneering work on shortwave diathermy for medicine and surgery when he was at Sandia. He said occasionally the test samples would end up getting a high dose of radiation in by mistake, and the thing would get cooked. And when he saw the cow liver, he said it reminded him almost exactly of what he had seen back in Sandia. And, um, this is all anomalous, and uh, why did you uh, sort of start coming to the conclusion that it was uh, human-based? Well, first of all, we were finding nothing here that was indicating that it was anything, that it was anything other. Um, everything here clean, uh, seemed to be something that could be done by somebody using, for example, microwave radiation, somebody hog-tying a cow and airlifting it in a chopper. Um, all of the things here seem to suggest that we were dealing with a, a very a clandestine operation, but that was, that was human and that, that had high technology at its disposal uh, and unlimited funds. It, it almost seems to me like performance art and that it seems to have no uh, uh, everyday sort of purpose, but maybe it's, you know, uh, supposed to be symbolic or make people think of something or another. 
Well, yeah, and some people have speculated along those lines, although when you start looking at it, you see that there is a method to this madness. And the patterns seem to suggest that, in fact, that there is uh, something purposeful in all of this, that um, they're doing something with the intention of getting at something. And then there's this smoke and mirrors that are thrown in front of it to give you the impression that maybe it's alien or maybe that it's uh, some sort of union archetypal, you know, performance thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's part of the deception that is deliberately being deployed in order to keep us from really understanding it. Um, and, and also to, disc to discredit the phenomenon, to keep the phenomenon from being taken too seriously. I think that's built into the equation. Um, so it's something done by some kind of um, covert, uh, quasi-governmental type agency with uh, multiple purposes. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. And that's the key. The key to understanding this is to try to take a multimodal view of the possibilities of what people might be looking for. And I think it depends upon the interests of those individuals that might be involved that you will see reflected in different aspects of it. It's very holographic. And the problem has been up until this point is that what people are doing is using a very, very monochromatic model in order to analyze it. You're never going to get there. Yeah, you had made the comment to me that ufologists and other people that are doing anomalous things have this attitude that's intolerant of ambiguity, and that's uh, kind of a Absolutely. very bad in this case. Maybe this could, phenomenon yeah. exploits that tendency in humans. Um, most people, when confronted with the complexity of this phenomenon, either dismiss it out of hand as being predators and scavengers and a bunch of crazy people out there that are trigger happy that uh, maybe are having too much moonshine, um, or um, they automatically lurch toward these extra mundane theories, uh, such as that aliens are coming down here and taking uh, cow parts, presumably, I guess, to open up a lot of French restaurants <laughs> in the galaxy. I don't know why. Um, but um, to get back to this particular case, um, now, uh, and these cases that were in dual state, one of the patterns, too, that Burgess had noticed was that there didn't seem to be anything random cows that were being pre-selected for death, uh, for the mutilation. Um, the focus seemed to be on either four-year-old cows or very young heifers. Mm -hmm. So Burgess came to the conclusion that somehow, in some mysterious way, whoever the mutilators were, that they were pre-selecting their victims, maybe marking them in advance for experimental research. Right. So... Uh, there was a confirmation of that later, wasn't there, the yeah, uh, UV this study? Is, this again to me, definitively points toward the human involvement. Um, he suspected that these animals were being pre-treated with some sort of substance that may be invisible to the naked eyes, almost like an invisible kind of ink, and that only under the proper kind of lighting would it appear. So, um, since most people had been complaining that just prior to the mutilation, they'd been seeing these low-flying helicopters. Now, that's, whole, that's a whole subject in and of itself. And Jim Keith, who is a a uh, researcher has written two books now on the subject of the black helicopters. Um, these are these very strange, uh, what John Keel years ago used to refer to as the mystery choppers. Uh, we know we had them way back in the 60s. But in the case of the mutilation, they would often appear just prior to the mutilation. Um, they would train a beam of light down over the herd. And then a mutilation would usually occur shortly thereafter. We could never understand why these choppers were coming into the area just before doing this insane, you know, 
uh, going through this insane maneuver of just panning a bright beam of light down across the herd. And Burgess felt that there was a method to that. There was something important and purposeful to that. It wasn't just they were trying to scare everybody. Um, so what he decided to do was he took 100 mixed cattle that belonged to Manuel Gomez and put them through a squeeze chute that was equipped with a series of ultraviolet lights because he believed that this was some sort of an ultraviolet light that was being used. And sure enough, only those cows that matched the, uh, the mutilated cows um, showed um, bright fluorescent splashes on their backs and type so on top side, as if you had taken some sort of glittery substance and painted it onto the hair itself. Um, five of the animals, three four-year-old cows, two young heifers, had these splashes on their backside. Didn't some of them later turn up mutilated, too? The ones yes, and, he had later, seen. Many of the, and they also developed, uh, some of them developed uh, signs of almost like a palsy, almost like they were having some sort of neural muscular problem, um, and that they were mutilated later. As if, in other words, somebody had injected them with something or something had gotten into their bloodstream and that, that one of the things that whoever these mutilators are that they were looking at was the possible effect of a chemical or something that the cow had ingested or had been injected with on its various organs, you see? Mm -hmm. um, when we had this analyzed, we had this material analyzed, this glutary substance, and we took a control sample, and Dr. Robert Schoenfeld from Schoenfeld Clinical Labs, who was in Albuquerque, did the analysis, and he found what he called highly suspicious deposits potassium and magnesium. The potassium level was 70 times higher than normal. And the entire substance, he said, was water-soluble, uh, soluble, which meant that it could not have entered the animal through normal means. And when we asked him, you know, well, how did this fluorescent get there? And he said, um, I can tell you this, it didn't happen naturally. Somebody had to put it there because I don't think it's aliens. Right. So it's very clear to me, based upon that, on some of these other facts that I've I've often here, in addition to the fact that we've also have found so many different kinds of tranquilizing agents and other kinds of chemicals in here that are obviously coming from humans. We have found uh, chlorpromazine, for example, ketamine. Um, we found citric acid, which is an anticoagulant. We found nicotine. We have found atropine, which is an anti-nerve gas agent. Now, so again, unless the aliens are just trying to mimic us and do things exactly the way that we do things, this in no way seems to be connected to the alien problem. I think that's a separate problem. I think it's a separate issue. What I think is going on is whoever these people are, they are, they are using the imagery, and the mythos surrounding the UFO phenomenon as a, way, uh, as a way of masking their clandestine activity. And there's no, no question that they are doing it. Have you ever engaged... Uh Linda Moulton Howe in debate about this because, you know, she does believe it's the alien thing, as you yeah, said. Yeah, you know, I, I've spoken to Linda, and I, and, I, and I like Linda a lot, but, you know, it's one of those things where I just don't... It's a, it's a case of somebody, I feel, whose mind is so firmly made up that nothing that I would say would really make much difference. Mm -hmm. um, my biggest problem with Linda, of course, is that she... I just feel that she has become so ideologically attached E.T. solution that she refuses to acknowledge these other elements. She conveniently just dismisses them or just ignores them, basically ignores them. They're not important to her. And I think it's important that we look at this aspect 
And this is not to say, by the way, that I think that some things that might be connected to a mutilation here or there might have been in the past or even presently connected to some alien consciousness. We can never rule that out, even though you can't prove a negative. Right. But what I'm saying is that the vast majority of the ones that at least that I've looked at clearly seem to be pointing elsewhere. Have you heard this thing? Uh, somebody I heard speculate that there were certain organs that words seemed to be harvested from these cattle that uh, would have the possibility to produce certain um, chemicals that have a mind-altering effect in humans. Have you heard that? Um, not so much that. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of speculation given over to the idea that the organs, A, um, this is one possibility, could be working as bioindicators, for example, for different kinds of minerals. So, in other words, you would take out the organ of the cows because the cow would be ingesting um, plant life, and the plant life would have absorbed some of these chemicals from the earth. And by looking at some of these organs, the reproductive organs, um, and other organs, that you would actually be able to get a bioindication of what is present, whether there are trace minerals there too, or you know, so forth and so on, uranium, you know, copper, zinc, so forth, and that this might be a very interesting way to to prospect, a kind of geophysical prospect. Um, I've heard that, you know, particular explanation that has been put forth. Um, some believe that the organs are being taken for radioactive uh, tests because. The, the reproductive organs would be the organs where you would actually find many rate radioactive chemicals and radioactivity actually stored and reflected. So that would be one of the first places you would look to see if, in fact, these animals had been exposed to radiation. Um, as far as mind-altering drugs, specifically, uh, what did you have in mind? Um, I read something about, somebody said something about beta-carbolines or the, the DMT that has this you know, heavy mind-altering effect. Uh, are you familiar with those? It, it, because it's interesting because, you know, Terrence McKenna talks about DMT. Yeah, McKenna, I was just going to say, yeah, I've, I've, I've read his work, and, I, you know, and True Hallucination and all that, the beta-carboline thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what... Almost as if somebody was uh, trying to get big uh, stores of these chemicals that they could... Uh, use on people to put them into these altered states where they could uh, contact extraterrestrials as the way that Terence McKenna says it is best done. Yeah. I don't know. It's, not, it's a pretty wild <laughs> speculation, but... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, what, one thing, too, that I wanted to point out, um, and this is, again, something that uh, Linda Howe and some of the other researchers have failed to look into. I, I've often said that if you don't ask the right questions, you're, you're not going to get the right answers, or you're going to get only the answers that you want. Um, you have to learn to ask all questions. When I was with Manuel Gomez, one, one question that I posed to him was whether he had ever been contacted by anyone prior to the mutilation um, regarding anything having to do with his property. And the reason I asked that question was that I was getting some indications from certain psychics. I was starting to do some remote viewing on the subject of the mutilation using uh, a group of psychics that I had come in contact with. And one of the suggestions that they had offered to me was that part of the part of the solution to the mutilation problem had to do with land grabs, with grabbing up property, not only because of the mineral stuff 
but also because the government in some sort of way wanted to gain as much control of the Southwest as they possibly could and build underground hangars um, in, in case, in the event that there would be some sort of a nuclear war, some sort of holocaust, either from fallout from chemical bacteriological warfare, whatever, that there would be a, a place, a safe haven for all of the military and also for all the politicians. And all of us, of course, would just basically... Uh -huh. you know. How did this manifest with uh, Gomez, specifically? Well, with Gomez, um, when I, I asked him the question of whether or not he had ever been contacted by anyone who had ever tried to seize control over his land, he had a valuable acreage of land um, with a lot of rich radioactive ore sites on it, I found out. And he said prior to the first mutilation that he had had um, that he was being hounded by uh, Phillips Petroleum uh, who wanted uh, Phillips Petroleum of Holland who wanted uh, to lease lease you know lease rights to, to to his land and he kept putting them off and, and they were becoming angry he said with the fact that he refused shortly after that personal visit from Phillips Petroleum he started to receive a rash of threatening phone calls. Um, he told me they were foreign-accented voices, German possibly, he wasn't sure. Um, they were vague um, threats, but threats in the sense that the tone was threatening. They seemed to know him, they knew who his son was, they knew about his family, about his activities, so forth. What kind of things did the, uh, this person or people say? Uh, basically, uh, they they handed him just vague references to the fact that um, um, we will get you one way or the other, things to that effect. It wasn't as specific um, as you might think. Oh, I remember um, this. Uh, you told me it sounded like, he said it sounded like somebody was reading off a script. Reading off a script, and also he said it sounded very distant. And as I said, there was an accent to the voice, European, but he said it was very threatening and it frightened him. And um, when his son was sitting there during my interview, he suddenly piped up and said, my God, I'd forgotten completely about that. No one's ever asked us about that. I, I, I just, it just totally went out of my mind. And again, I think it's important that we ask all of these questions. I mean, maybe these things are coincidences. Right. If they are, they're, they're amazing coincidences. Yeah, we're winding down for about to about five minutes here. Okay. And there was one, there was, well, we can ask a few questions, but... One of the ones, I, we were kind of getting towards trying to figure out maybe a speculation as to who might be doing this and specifically why, since, yes. it's, uh, since we've kind of conclusively reached, you know, we've kind of reached the conclusion that it's not aliens. Right. Um, this is the big problem. Now, let me just uh, tell you that, I, I, as I said, I worked I work with four sensitives who uh, were helping me gain some sort of insight into this as to who some of these, um, operators might be who are the players by sensitives you mean psychics by psychics right yeah. and um, some of the names that they threw out were Exxon um, pharmaceutical houses such as Eli Lilly um, there were um, Howard Hughes's name came up repeatedly now these are independent psychic readings none of them talked to each other none of them talked to one another they, they knew nothing about one another they weren't prompted in any other way they weren't prompted in any way by me they were given sparse information about this, um, no specifics. And yet, 
many of them were coming up repeatedly with the same names over and over. Um, former Attorney General John Mitchell's name came up. Um, Howard Baker. Justice Senator Department. Howard Baker's name came up. Um, I was told that the Department of Agriculture knows all about this. They know all about it. Has anybody been able to confirm any of the... I know you're going to go on, I'm sorry, but the, has anybody been able to confirm any of these things outside of the um, remote viewing sessions that you had uh, through, you know, just mundane means? Well, I, I, I put out some feelers to, to, to people, and I've gotten some confirmation of certain things that might be tied. For example, Eli Lilly. Um, one of the connections that Danny Casalaro um, spoke about was, was this, um, this whole thing about mapping the human gene, you know, this project Yugo. Yeah, Genome Project. The Genome Project. And he felt that that was, um, that, that was you know, an important element you know, in a lot of this, uh, judging from the notes that he left behind. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I seem to be finding with cattle mutilation is that genetic engineering is the key to understanding it, the, um, understanding cloning, um, the development of cloning, um, gene research, but also the development, perhaps, of these uh, parthenogenic viruses. Um, it always comes back to genetics, and I think that that's where we have to look, and that's why I think the pharmaceutical houses are important um, targets, and they're suspicious. And I, th and I think also a lot of the, uh, obviously, the oil companies. If we're talking about uranium, trace minerals, and things of that sort, I mean, they certainly would want to have a piece of that action. Yeah, but oil companies, they never do anything that's uh, questionable, do they? No, absolutely not. You're right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> hey, Peter, we're about out of time here. Uh, could we possibly get you on the show again sometime? Well, I'd love to come on. All right. Sure, there's just, always so much uh, more to talk about on there. You know, it's a, it's a tough topic to really compress down. Uh, yeah, Greg and I had actually a lot of other things we wanted to ask you about, but uh, just in the hour here, we didn't even fully cover the cattle mutilation issues. So, sure. Uh, could you, uh, or do you want to give out any information if somebody wants to contact you, an email address or anything? Oh, sure, sure. I'm on CompuServe, and it's uh, PeterJordan1 at CompuServe.com. And again, you know, if anyone wants to write to me in confidence, uh, I mean, you know, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, you know, I won't reveal something unless somebody says that it's okay to go public with something. But I'm, I'm basically looking for any information that people might have that dovetails with some of this or where people feel like they might have some confirmation of something that I'm talking about to show me that I'm, if I'm on the right track or not on the right track. Okay. Uh, any final thing you'd like to say real quick? Um, I would just like to encourage people when they look at this type of thing to not automatically lurch toward the, the most exotic explanation, um, although this probably sounds exotic what I'm talking about, but to consider the possibilities that right here on our own planet, we do have ingenuity. We do have the ability to produce incredible illusions and deceptions that are mind-boggling and that, for the most part, are almost getting to the point where they are indistinguishable from something that an alien consciousness might be responsible for. In fact, if I were an alien, I might even be jealous of what we are capable of doing on our own. All right. Thanks a lot, Peter. We'll uh, have you on the show again sometime, all right? Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, thanks Peter. Okay. Thank you, Greg, too. Bye now. All right. I'll talk to you soon. That was Peter Jordan, uh, researcher of anomalous cattle mutilations and many other subjects. Thank you for being with us, and thank you, Greg Bishop, for co-hosting and producing today.
You're quite welcome, Robert. All right. We're going to turn it over to Dan Freehemp and the Radio Freehemp Show. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for listening to Cartoon Pleroma.